Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Professor Matthew Cobb, exploring the human brain, recorded live as part of Berwyn Salon North, Out of Your Head, Out of Your Mind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you to the organisers and thank you to you. Uh, this is the biggest audience I've spoken to in front of uh, for, for two years. So, fantastic. I'm going to be talking about the idea of the brain. So, what in fact we think is going on up here. And I think the first thing to just think about is, well, why do we talk about the brain at all? Why do we think that it's all going on up here? Because for most of human history, for most people around the world, it hasn't been the brain. It's been the guts, it's been the liver, it's been the heart, some other part of our anatomy. And the reason for this is quite straightforward, because that's actually what it feels like. When you think, when you're frightened, when you're afraid, when you're excited, it's not up here. I mean, you know it's in your head because you were told at school. But there's nothing from just thinking about it or introspection that could lead you to that. And we can see this, in fact, in our language. We can see this in a whole set of phrases. Just look at these phrases. These are like relics. They're like fossils of the old way of thinking. If you put brain instead of heart in any of those phrases, it would just sound bonkers. And the same things work in other languages. Those of you who can speak other languages may well know similar phrases. I've given talks in Bulgarian, Spanish, in which the same phrases come up. So how is it that we went from this early understanding to now thinking that our, all our consciousness, the way every animal behaves, is structured by this lump of grey stuff, squishy grey stuff in our heads? To get the, the first people to really think about this, of course, as with everything, were the ancient Greeks. And Aristotle, who was a great thinker from about two and a half thousand years ago, he argued, like most people around the world, that it was the heart that was the key part of the body. Why? Because it moves and you can feel it changing its motion as you get excited or whatever. And movement was very, very significant for the Greeks. So Aristotle was very, very confident that it was the heart. And the brain, well, it seemed to do some kind of cooling function. It was some kind of uh, primitive ancient Greek radiator. Uh, and in the 5th century, so about 100 years later, uh, a number of people, including the person who we now call Hippocrates, who was in fact a group of writers on the island of Kos. If any of you have been out into the Greek islands, that's where this group of physicians worked. And they began to argue that it was the brain, not the heart. And the heart was just something to do with the blood, which was clearly significant. But the brain seemed to be attached to the sense organs, and it was looking a lot more interesting than the heart. But they didn't have any proof of this. They couldn't prove it. First person to come up with a kind of proof, I'm not going to go into it in any detail because it is pretty unpleasant, was this chap Galen. Uh, and Galen was quite an amazing man. You may have heard of him uh, as the man who 
really created what passed for medicine for about 1,500 years in the West with his idea of humours, different uh, kind of movements in your body. But he was also uh, an anatomist and a physician and a surgeon. And he did a lot of uh, surgery on uh, Roman gladiators who kind of carved each other up in the arena. And then he began to notice various things about where certain injuries would alter behaviour. And he was able to show that basically if this was in a pig, not in a human, if you hold the heart, if you stop the heart from beating, the poor old pig is still consciousness, still conscious. Whereas on the other hand, if you push on its brain, it immediately goes to sleep. So he actually did an experiment, which is well known. But on the other hand, most people went, yeah, but that's not what it feels like. You know, when I'm excited, it's not up here. It's in my heart. When I'm frightened, it's in my guts. You know, this is a great experiment. But it's all about pigs. No, no, no. The real business is going on in the head. And there was a very, very slow, very, very gradual change. And we can see this in Shakespeare. So this is from uh, The Merchant of Venice. And if you remember from school, there's those bits in the middle of Shakespeare's plays where everybody starts dancing and does stuff. And this is one of the songs. And somebody, they all, everybody sings at the end, ding-dong bell. Uh, but at the beginning, it goes, tell me where is fancy, so imagination, ideas. Tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head. So at the beginning of the 17th century, Shakespeare not only knew that all those clever physicians weren't quite sure where thought originated. But he also knew that if he made a little song about this, the groundlings, that's people like you, but standing up and throwing, uh, throwing cabbages at the actors when they were no good, they would understand it as well. So this was part of general culture at the beginning of the 17th century. And people were really not very sure what was going on. They knew that it was one or the other, and gradually there was an increased confidence that the heart was basically just a pump, whereas the brain, when you looked at it, was not only connected to the sense organs, but also was amazingly complicated. So the question then began to arise, well, how does it all work? And the first person to really think about that, yeah, there was no, the key point to know is there was no, there's no experiment. There's no apple falling from the the tree on Newton's head, which didn't happen either, of course. There's none of that. There's no single experiment. There's a slow accumulation of increasing certainty that it's the brain and not the heart or any other organ. First person to think about this, the, how it might do, work to have an idea, was Descartes, the French philosopher. And in the 1630s, he was wandering around Paris, and they had various public parks, which included kind of primitive animatronic uh, statues. You can see them here. And these would, uh, so in this case, we've got a dragon, big dragon, and it would open its mouth, and Samson, or whoever it is here, would come along and bop it on the head with his uh, club. And all this was worked by uh, hydraulics, so water power, and by weights, moving up and down. Pretty primitive, but everybody was quite amazed by it. And what Descartes thought was, well, Maybe that's how we work. Maybe that's how our bodies work. They're working on the basis of some kind of hydraulic power. You have this little drawing here of a man, big man baby who... Uh, you can't see. I'm going to move this because it's important. There we go. Big man baby um, whose foot, marked B, is going to touch the fire, helpfully marked A. And what's going to happen, of course, it's going to hurt, and something, some kind of watery stuff is going to go up into the brain, marked F, 
and then is going to reflect back down. That's where we get the idea of reflexes come, coming from. So what Descartes was arguing was there's pressure, and it's all a bit like these hydraulic systems we have, and that's how everything works. Now, it didn't take much to prove Descartes was wrong, because uh, people immediately went away and said, oh, well, I'll get a hapless frog, I'll kill it, and then I'll chop its nerves, and does anything come spurting out of it? No, there's no hydraulic pressure in nerves. So whatever it is, it's not that. But Descartes, despite being completely wrong, was trying to use the height of technology, the most amazing stuff he could see around him, to interpret how the brain works. And that has been the theme of the last kind of 400 years as we've struggled to understand what's going on in our heads. The big change, of course, came with the discovery of electricity and its mastery and the ability to store it in, oops, in batteries, which you can see here. And this is an actual illustration, a rather gruesome experiment that took place in private with about a dozen members of the Royal Society uh, in about 1804. And uh, this man had uh, killed his wife and child, and he was hanged, and he was taken down from the gallows and immediately put into a room with the great and the good, who then get this uh, battery, and they put the electrodes on either side of his head, and his eyes open, his eyes start to roll around. He moves his arms in, a, in something like life. So this is pretty terrifying, as you can imagine, as well as being rather unpleasant. Uh, and it must be said, this was not done uh, in public, this is only for the select few who could see this. But it suggested that what was in our nerves might be electricity. What was done in public wasn't with, uh, wasn't with humans, but with animals. People could go along and see, uh, in, the, in Drury Lane, there were theatres that would have an exhibition, uh, and you'd pay two and sixpence, which was a lot of money in those days, uh, to go along and watch somebody getting a battery and putting it, say, on a pig's head or a, a, a sheep's head. And at the Royal Institution in London in 1813, there was one of these displays showing various bits of uh, animal body twitching with electricity. And a young teenager uh, called Mary Godwin went along and was very, very impressed by this. And about three years later, when she'd run off uh, scandalously with a, a notorious poet, and they were... Uh, on their honeymoon, some of you know where we're going with this, they were on their honeymoon uh, on Lake Geneva, and it was a terrible wet summer because a volcano had gone off on the other side of the planet. This is all true. The no weather was awful, so they sat inside, and they all wrote ghost stories. And she, of course, by that stage, was Mary Shelley, and she wrote Frankenstein. She got the idea, it appears, from seeing a demonstration uh, like this. So we got electricity but electricity just seems to, maybe it's just irritating the body. You know, maybe that's all that's going on. But as soon as electricity became mastered in the 1830s and 1840s with the telegraph system, people began to draw parallels between the way that the telegraph system was organised. And yes, I'm afraid it all, does all go to London. Uh, you know, it's a bit in Leeds and in Manchester, but basically it all goes to London. Just like the nerves in this 19th century drawing all go up to the head. And people thought, well, actually, this is the parallel went both ways. They said, well, it's just, just as in the body, nerves are sending messages from the body up to the head. The same thing is happening here. The messages are all going there, but they can go the other way. So the, the, the whole of the country was thought to be like a body, and the body was thought to be like the country's uh, telegraph system. And this chap, 
was completely forgotten now, Alfred Smee, he was a, a great science popularizer uh, in the middle of the 19th century, he said that we really have electrotelegraphic communication in the nervous system. That which is seen or felt or heard is telegraphed to the head. And he thought it was exactly the same kind of principle. But if you think about it, it's a bit of a problem because telegraph systems are fixed. You can only send a message from there to there and then you've got to go and pick it up or somebody then brings it around to your house or whatever. It, it, it's fixed. It's not, it's, not, it's not flexible. And we know that bodies and behaviour is much more interesting than that. And so in the... Uh, oh, gotta, OK, I've got to talk about this first. The, one of the issues, yes, the location was really important to them. So it's the same kind of idea. This is what's called phrenology, when uh, the idea was that different structures in the brain, you could detect them by feeling the outside of your head. So this is complete nonsense, but everybody believed it in the 19th century. Virtually every 19th century novel you read will have a little passage about phrenology, whether it's by Dickens or George Eliot, or indeed the, the first time that Sherlock Holmes meets Moriarty. Moriarty feels his head and makes a very uh, rude remark about how stupid he is. And everybody believed in this. Queen Victoria had her, her children phrenologized. And Karl Marx, the German revolutionary who lived in England, spent his time when he met his new comrade, would feel their head to see whether they were trustworthy. So we got localization of function. This went with the idea of there being places that you could send messages to. Now, this turns out to be largely rubbish. There's certainly no place for sublimity or conscientiousness. But there are places in the brain that seem to do something. This was largely the work of this man called David Ferrier. And he was able to, using batteries invented by Alfred Smee, in fact, on this top figure, you can see this is a, a monkey's brain, and he was able to do very delicate experiments where he would just slightly stimulate the outside of the brain, and the monkey would then twitch its arm. Sometimes it would twitch its ears as though it heard something. And so he was able to identify on the brain different parts that seem to be doing different things. And by comparative anatomy, he could then show on a human brain, well, these are the various parts. This bit is controlling uh, this particular movement and so on. And clearly, if you're going to have an operation, which was starting to be possible because you had anaesthetics by this stage and antibiotics and disinfectant, then it was very important to know where you should or shouldn't cut and what might happen if you were to cut somewhere. At the same time, the one absolutely certain thing we are confident about localization of function in the brain became apparent, and I'm using it right now, speech. So you'll notice that uh, there's a big bit here in the human brain. There's no equivalent in the monkey, and that's because monkeys can't talk. Whereas humans, and this was identified in the 1860s, if you have a stroke in this part of your brain, you start to lose the power of speech, which is why if somebody starts not to be able to speak, you need to get into the hospital very quickly. And that's because this left-hand front of the brain controls speech. And it's very odd, because first, it's really, really specific. It, it's there. It's very, very localised. Secondly, it's only on one side. Everything else is mirrored. It's only on the left-hand side of the brain. So we're very confident that that is localised. These control mechanisms are kind of localised as well. But as to the rest of it, it really wasn't clear how this all connected together. And then we get to the idea of flexibility. 
Because in the 1880s, they started developing telephone exchanges. Now, with all due respect, there are some younger people here, but when I talk to my students, I have to go on to a long explanation about what on earth this is, because they've no idea. You all know, or if you haven't, go and watch an old film, and you'll see. So the key point here is you've got flexibility. You can connect to different places. People immediately got very excited about this and thought, well, maybe that's how the brain works. So the brain, from having been uh, a kind of uh, water-based system and then just some kind of telegraph, people started to say, well, it's a bit like a switchboard. And I've even seen this in this century in fancy neuroscience journals. People talk about the brain being like a switchboard, giving you alternate choices. But the big change in the way we started thinking about this came through the work of this man, Edgar Adrian. I'll tell you what, I'm going to go down here. I think I've finished with the pointing. Edgar Adrian. Edgar Adrian uh, is quite a, an example of... Uh, scientists get very, academics in general, really like prestige and having great awards. Well, who's heard of Edgar Adrian? Very few of you, I guess. Uh, and yet, Edgar Adrian, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, his son uh, won the, was a member of the Royal Society. He went on to become vice-chancellor of Cambridge University, president of the Royal Society. His two favourite students won the Nobel Prize, and now nobody's heard of him. So fame is fleeting, even when you are incredibly clever. As well as being incredibly clever, what Adrian did was to, pub to explain things to the public. And to explain things to the public, he used to need to use different language. And the language he reached for was the new language that was emerging after the First World War based on codes and information and messages. And this was the kind of thing that he would explain. This is a, uh, a frog uh, neuron cell that is responding to being stretched. It's got different weights on it. And as you put more and more weights on it, it is showing these responses, these spikes, more and more spikes... And he said, this is expressing, and in, the information that's in here is about the weight, that's the message that's being sent. And you can see the frequency is increasing, and that's the code that the brain is interpreting. So again, he's using, we haven't got computers yet, but you have got clearly a great interest in electronic communication is beginning, you've got military codes, and he's taking that language and applying it to the brain. He was also uh, able to do little party tricks. He did them at conferences. He, could, uh, he, he didn't do meditation, I don't think, but he could get what's called the alpha wave. So he'd go into... Uh, shut his eyes. He, normally, if you record from the outside of the brain, you can get these lovely alpha signals if you've got your eyes shut. And you, that's that's the, the place you go to when you're doing mindfulness, I guess. If you open your eyes, it disappears. The same way as if you were asked to do some mental arithmetic. His complete, you know, his relaxed state would disappear if he had to calculate, I don't know, the square root of 93. Then he was hopeless at it. What's amazing is he would even do this with a water beetle. So the water beetle is a hefty great big thing, but again, he could put an electrode into its brain, and if you put it in the dark, you got a lovely alpha wave, turn the light on, and it went away, turn the light off, and it came back. So there are similarities across the animal kingdom. I'm not sure what happened if you asked the water beetle what the square root of 93 was. Who knows? So the final stage, clearly the place we've got to now, is that the brain is some kind of computer. But what's fascinating about this is that when the first digital computers were developed in the 1940s by this man, John von Neumann, he's the man not Alan Turing, not anybody else, who created the computers that you all have in your pockets that we all use to communicate. 
When von Neumann designed his computer, he was using the latest ideas about how the brain was wired up to build his computer. So at the beginning, the computer was a brain. It is modelled on what people thought the brain does. Now, as it happens, those ideas were completely wrong, but nonetheless, he's able to create this astonishing device, and it's now used as this reference point for what we think the, uh, the brain does. And what we think the brain does is it contains symbolic representations of the outside world that it's then manipulating in some way uh, through computations of some kind. It's very hard to actually identify these things, which enable it to predict what will happen and to produce appropriate behaviours. And that's the same in you, me, uh, water beetle, whatever. And among the processes that are involved in that are feedback, so you stop doing something if it's already happened, or you make it do more. Inhibition, you stop processes, and you also calculate how likely something is. Okay, so I think most neuroscientists would agree that's what the brain does. But then the real problem is, how on earth does it do it? How are these things represented in neurons? And this is where it's going to get tricky. We haven't got very long, but it's, we're going to take a hell of a ride. I'm going to start with a maggot, just to give you some idea of complexity. So, I spent most of my career studying maggots, these tiny little things. That's basically what they do, they just wriggle along. They're much smaller than your fishing maggots. They're really, really tiny, the ones I study. And, as you can see, the maggot is wriggling. And to wriggle, it's got to know that it's stretched, okay? So, it's got a stretch receptor, a bit like Adrian had. And that's down here, in the body wall. This is the a diagram of the brain, it's pointing, it's kind of an angle, it's pointing forwards, this is the front end of the maggot, and these are all the nerves that are making it do all that wriggling business. But in the wall of its body, it's got to say, oh, I've stretched, oh, we can start the next stretch now. So a single receptor, so a single neuron, here's a lovely picture of it, all green. Now, that neuron, all it's doing is saying, oh, I've stretched. That neuron has 53 inputs to it, the synapse is a place where two cells talk to each other. 53 on the way in, 18 on the way out. It's connected to 74 other cells. This is just to tell the maggots, not its brain, not even its brain, just this little circuit down here, which we still don't understand, how, that I've stretched. We can do the next bit. And many of those synapses have many, many different neurotransmitters. So it's not like a switch. It can do all sorts of things. It can tell all sorts, send all sorts of signals. So it's really, really complicated. Human synapses. We have dozens of neurotransmitters in each synapse. They're not the only, only one kind. They can be turned on and turned off, so it's not like a computer. It's not digital at all. A single synapse in your body, I don't know how many trillions you've got, has got about 5,000 different proteins in it. It's so mind-bogglingly complicated. It's not a zero or a one. And you've also got hormones that can change over the long term how our brains and our nervous systems respond. And you're probably going, well, wait a minute. Yeah, OK, that's all very good. But I've seen, I've seen your brain light up. Your brain lights up when you're thinking about your mother or you're imagining somebody playing ping-pong. I can see it all. Indeed, you've all seen this kind of images. This was the first one from uh, nearly 30, oh, over 30 years ago now, 31 years ago. And... It's true, you can see things, what's happening in the brain. You don't know exactly what it is, there's something going on. That's literally all it tells you. But I just, again, want to give you some idea of the complexity. So, each one of these units is called a, a voxel, a bit like a pixel, but it's in 3D. 
So the smallest one of these things, which is probably that one, that tiny one, which is repeated all over the brain, that contains, here we go, these, these facts are true. I always double-check them because I never believe them. Each one of those voxels in your brain, you can see in a scan, contains five and a half million neurons. Okay, five and a half million. You've got about 80 billion in your brain. It's got up to 55 billion synapses, so connections going on in there. It's got 22 kilometers, yes, that's right, kilometers of the input side of the neuron and 220 kilometers of the output side. So it's incredibly dense, it's incredibly complicated, and we have absolutely no idea how it works. And even if everything that you ever hear about, oh, his brain was lighting up and he's doing that, doesn't actually tell you what's going on, because a clever neuroscientist put it, where is not how. If you want to know how it all works, it's a lot more complicated. Now, one of the ways we've understood how the brain works mainly is by vision, studies of vision. In particular, uh, in the old days, it was in cats, <clears throat> and you were able to, the cat would be unconscious, but you could still record from what it was seeing or how its brain was responding to visual stimuli, and you could see that there were different parts of its brain that were kind of detecting dots, and sometimes they'd be detecting lines. So people thought, well, maybe that's how we, we see. We kind of assemble a set of images, dots and lines, and we turn it all into uh, something that we can see. But that then gets a problem because we can recognize all sorts of things. And the joke was, well, what about your grandma? You can recognize your grandma. Okay. I can imagine having a load of different bits of my grandma's face and sticking them all together. But then I can also recognize my grandmother standing on a head, my grandmother riding backwards on a, on a giraffe playing a banjo. It still looks like my grandmother. So we can't have an image of everything. We can't have a bit of our brain encoding absolutely everything we recognize. Something else going on. So we all laughed about that and said, this is complete rubbish. And then, about 10 years ago, some very brave patients were about to go under the knife uh, for treatment for terrible epilepsy. And they were very kindly said to the scientists, yes, you can poke around in my brain if you want before you uh, start chopping bits out. Uh, that'd be fine. And so they projected various images and they recorded from different parts of the brain. And to everybody's astonishment, in one of these patients, they found a cell, just one of those 80 billion that they were recording from, that got very excited by Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> not by Brad Pitt, and not by perhaps famous, I don't know, but probably just random blonde lady in the background. Jennifer Aniston, it had to be Jennifer Aniston. That's the equivalent of my grandma. That's very strange. But sure, it's not all rubbish in our heads. Somebody else, who I think was an engineer, he had a cell that only responded to the Sydney Opera House. Somebody else had a cell that only responded to a drawing of a differential equation. Fancy, eh? So this looks like, in fact, we do have single bits of our brain that are devoted to knowing who Jennifer Aniston is and what she looks like. Now, it's not actually what's going on. There's a bit of deception here, and it's absolutely fascinating. What's happened is they've put the electrode in, and they've recorded from one part of what will be a very, very complicated set of interactions that does indeed correspond in some unimaginable way to the concept of Jennifer Aniston and her, what she looks like. But that is just a whole connection of 
neurons. And there's going to be, probably will be some overlap with Blonde Lady in the background. But it's not the same. It's slightly different. And they just happened to get lucky by putting in a cell, a record electrode, into one of those cells. And if they had gone to somebody else and they could find the same cell, it wouldn't be Jennifer Aniston. Furthermore, we now know that these representations change with time. That is, if they'd gone back to that very same cell in a month later, it wouldn't be Jennifer Aniston, it would be getting excited by something else. So there's localization of function, but then there also isn't. It's very odd. And here we can see, this just came out this week. There have been a number of examples of this. This is particularly dramatic. I said, the one thing we're absolutely certain of is that this is to do with speaking. Well, it isn't necessarily. This lady, she's 55 years old. Probably when, before she was born, she had a stroke in the front left-hand side of her brain. And it's completely missing. You can see. Don't need me to point at it. See, those big black bits, they shouldn't be there. So she shouldn't be able to speak. She shouldn't be in any way intelligent. And yet, she's a university graduate. She's perfectly normal. This was only discovered when she had a brain scan when she was 25. So the brain is amazingly flexible. It's not just that bits of you know, representation of Jennifer Aniston can move over time. Rather, this, this woman's brain has completely reorganized itself. It's done something which normally you can't do. But in the absence of that left-hand side of the brain, her brain made itself able to speak and able to control speech. So all this is telling us this mind-bogglingly complicated, oh, what about AI? Maybe AI can help us. So um, maybe AI can help. Everybody's very excited about artificial intelligence. And uh, you all know Love Hearts, made by Swizzles of Derbyshire and New Mills. And there's an AI researcher called Janelle Shane, and she used a neural net, which is a clever computer program, which has basically read the whole of the internet and can produce articles. You give it a prompt, it will then write an article. And what she did was to say, write some love hearts. And this is what it came up with. Because <laughs> it doesn't understand context. It's stupid. So, final point is this woman, Eve Marder. Eve Marder has spent her whole life trying to understand the lobster's stomach. Not its brain, but its stomach. The stomach of the lobster has 30 neurons in it. It produces two rhythms as it grinds up its food. She has no idea how it works. She can model it. She knows everything about those cells. She can't explain how it works. So what can we do for the future? I think how was the approach? My idea would be to understand small brains. The fly, Drosophila, which I studied, the baby, the maggot. Maggot's got about 10,000 neurons, fly about 100,000. The zebrafish, baby zebrafish, has got about 100,000 neurons in its brain. Maybe this platinaris has got about 100. If we understand simple principles, maybe we can understand more complex brains. So the future, well, the lessons of all this is that science and technology are intertwined. They're mixed. We use metaphors from technology to understand discovery. But those metaphors, like every model, we've heard a lot about this over the last two years, are limited. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Framework can also be a cage. It can limit what we think. So this suggests that new technology and new developments will help us in the future. We will be able to reimagine what the brain does. And this obviously raises the question of what will they be. Now, I used to say, jokingly, well, if I knew that, I'd be really rich, and I, yeah, I have no idea. 
That didn't satisfy the audience. So I've now built a future machine. We're going to see in a little video what future technology will be like. Okay. Doesn't always work. Charlie, can you, can you fix it? No, it's not going to work. You're going to have to work that out yourselves. Okay, and that's in the book. Thank you. Professor Matthew Cobb, thank you very much for that insight. Sorry, I went on a bit. I was, no, no. I was, there's a time sign being held. I was waiting for the hook. No, the no, trap no, door not at all. I think we all found it. Well, I certainly did. Absolutely fascinating. I'm sure the left side of my brain must be quite large because I know my husband says I never stop talking, so perhaps I've got more than my fair share. But uh, anyway, so much to take in there, and I'm sure so much to think about. This is an opportunity for you now. If you have any particular questions that you'd like to, to pose to Matthew, I'm sure if he can, and I'm sure he can, answer them. So if you'd like to, to raise your hand, and the lighting is, uh, I don't know if we can raise the lights a little bit to see. Is there any, oh, we have a gentleman here on table five, so what would you like to ask Matthew? I, I have read that we have as many neurons in our gut as a cat has in its brain. What do they do? Well, very interesting. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot fewer uh, than, in, uh, than in the cat's brain, but still a lot, uh, probably more than in a fly's brain. Uh, they're clearly doing something else. They're organizing the movement, so they control the peristaltic movement of your gut. They also, and people get very interested at the moment, they produce neurotransmitters, some of which seem to end up being taken up to the, the brain. So in links with our microbiome, which people know about, so the microbes that live in our guts, they seem to be playing a role not only in our basic physiology, and a lot of that is not under our conscious control, it's part of what's called the autonomous nervous system, where we don't have an uh, autonomic nervous system, where we don't have actual control of it, unless you're some kind of uh, great... Um, uh, you know, and you've got amazing introspection. You can't change the speed of your heart, for example. Yeah? Um, some people, a few rare people can who do a lot of meditation. But in general, we don't have control over uh, those parts of our nervous system. So the guts, nerves in our guts are organizing the movement of our intestine and so on. But they are also, together with our microbiome, producing neurotransmitters which seem to have uh, an influence on our brains and therefore perhaps on our behavior. So it's quite possible that, I'm not saying you can eat yourself happy, uh, but that what you eat will may well alter the activity of your microbes in your guts and then uh, you way you feel. Excellent, I think chocolate does that for me. <laughs> well, um, yeah, indeed, absolutely, <laughs> it's very good. Is there anyone else in the room? Surely there must be, uh, we have, we have this wonderful gentleman with us who is so knowledgeable. Yes, I'm not quite sure what table, but there's a hand just there on the right-hand side. Um, the microphone is winging its way to you, so what is your question? Thank you. I was just wondering if there was um, any impact on the 55-year-old graduate of not having the... Apparently not, no. Um, I mean, the, the paper that came out, it was fantastic because it opened with a statement from her. Had a little letter from her to the readers saying, you know, I'm quite normal. Uh, you know, I know people think my brain's really interesting, but I'm just a normal kind of person. So it seems that there's a complete... Uh, because it happened so early, I think that's the key point. Clearly, you know, if you can recover from a stroke, 
if you get the right treatment. But if you don't get the right treatment, it may well be there's nothing much you can do. So when, as we all know, when you get old, things get fixed. When you're young, they're much more flexible. There's another case of a young girl uh, who for various, she had terrible brain cancer, so literally they took out the left-hand side of her brain when she was about four. This happened in London. She's now at a UK university and is perfectly normal. So there is flexibility when you're very, very young, and it also suggests that what we experience in our behaviour is driving the brain to organise itself in certain ways. It's altering the shape, and the fact that she heard language and was trying to speak and you know, felt because of her instincts that she needed to speak, that ended up creating the relevant structures uh, on the right-hand side of the brain, whereas in mo most people, they're not there at all. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Yes, I think the hands are starting to go up there. I think uh, there's another lady um, on, the same, on the same table, just at the front there. Thank you. Uh, oh, hello. Thank you. I just wondered what actually um, helps with that flexibility. Sorry? What helps encourage that flexibility, and do you have any ideas? Well, when you're young, nothing. Just being young, that's yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you all know it's dead easy to learn languages when you're a child, right? I learned English when I was a baby. It's simple. Mm. Um, on the other hand, when you get older, after about 15, then it gets really hard. Same thing for a musical instrument. Or learning... Some of you may have tried in lockdown to do maths, gone back to your school days. You can't do it anymore. It's really, really hard. So those, interestingly, those three things, which are all quite abstract manipulation of language, music, and maths, young people are very, very good at, and their brains can get very, very flexible. For those of us who are much older, then it is... I mean, your, your brain isn't a muscle, but you can exercise it, and there's lots and lots of evidence that doing crosswords, doing puzzles, doing all sorts of things to keep your brain active will help push off the, the overall effects of old age. It's not a guarantee, but it's certainly going to uh, make it much less likely that you'll, you'll have big problems later on. Mm -hmm. There was another gentleman, I think, over, or a lady over this side that wanted to ask a question. Um, if small brains are the way for the future, like of the small animals, how do you study them? Because can you put them in an MRI scanner? Well, as I say, the MRI scanner... Um, so. <laughs> The world, I mean, so the, the, for the general public, MRI scans are what you see on the websites or newspaper, if you read newspaper. Um, for the, and people who use them think they're really good. And they're clearly, if you've got a problem, uh, they want to know if you had a stroke, they'll put you in an MRI scan and that will tell you what's going on. But in terms of really knowing the detail, because the resolution is so coarse, it's actually very, very hard to use them to understand what the brain is doing. And most neuroscientists who study neurons can't recognise this as being a useful tool. There's just been a big paper come out. So most of these studies are on about, for example, saying that uh, looking at trying to find uh, how your brain might behave differently if you're depressed, for example. And clearly that would be very, very useful if we had a way of measuring depression, which we don't at the moment. And most of the studies that have been done on that one, they don't agree, and they all have about 20 people in each study to try and measure it, because it's, it, it's hard to do this work. And there's been a, just been a big paper come out, look at all the data, and their conclusion is that for that kind of study, rather than saying, you've had a stroke, you need help, for, to, to know about the relationship between our behaviour and our ideas and the brain for an fMRI scan, 
you'd need tens of thousands of subjects. There's never been a study of that level. So I think the, the community is beginning to wonder whether this is the right approach. You might have heard about 15 years ago some experiments, some, some fMRI experimenters to show the problems with the approach. Um, they took a dead salmon and put it in a scanner and they showed the, scan, showed the salmon various photos and asked it what it thought about it. And they recorded <laughs> the responses, which of course were just random noise. And then they presented this as a satire to say, look, our methods aren't good enough. Um, so the community <laughs> itself is actually very concerned uh, about how to do this. And it's a gap between what we consume as the public, the presentation of this, and the real, really hard work of trying to understand what exactly is happening. I mean, as I said earlier on, neurons can not only, they're not, they're not like switches, they don't just go on, they can inhibit, they can go negative as well. But all a, an fMRI scan says is that something is happening, it says there's oxygen being consumed. That's all it says. And you don't know whether the neurons, and remember, there's 220 kilometers of outputs in there. Are they up? Are they down? Are they inhibited? You don't know. So it, it, it's very, very hard. And that, I mean, the, the, the simple answer is don't work on people, which is not what you want to hear. But to get the kind of answers about brains, I think small brains are going to be the way to go. To get to answers about minds, about how we behave, well, then you need to study people. And that's what the next two talks are going to be about. And you'll see the gap. And minds, I think we know much more about minds and behavior than we do uh, about what the brain's actually doing. Wonderful. And enlightening speech. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com. <laughs>